Welcome back to our study in Proverbs. We're in Proverbs chapter 10. And we will be looking at the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. We'll get that wrapped up. And then we're going to be in a lengthier section, really all of chapter 11, which contrasts uh, or really meditates on righteous behavior. Obviously, there's some contrast there, but overall quite positive in terms of its statements. Um, Let's open with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into the temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, in chapter 10, we left off at verse 29, and I had reintroduced you to the biblical distinction between righteousness and blamelessness. Blamelessness doesn't mean that someone is sinless, but really that they are conducting themselves in good faith, in general keeping with the parameters of their vocation. So, a husband that provides for his family, is faithful to his wife, whatever other sins he may have, he's fulfilling that vocation blamelessly. So that would be one example of blameless. And 29, the way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless. That idea of a fortress but the way of the Lord is destruction to evildoers. Interesting, because frequently what you have contrasted are two different ways and two different ends. Here you have one way, but that one way affects people in two different ways. Namely, that one way is for the blameless a stronghold, a place of refuge and safety, but for evildoers, contrasted with the blameless, That way of the Lord is destruction. So Paul says something similar when he talks about his apostolic ministry and then by extension the pastoral ministry as it being to those who believe the aroma of life but to those who do not believe the aroma of death. Is he changing his message? No, it's one message but it has these two very different reactions. And so there's one way and it has these two very different effects. Okay, on to 30. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. Of course, as understood in its original context, you're under the old covenant, and the main way to be removed from the land is to fall into crass idolatry and worship of other gods, and that is part and parcel of the Old Covenant is that if you fall into this sin, you'll be removed from the land. So there's the second reference. And the righteous, those who keep the covenant with Yahweh, will never be removed. And perhaps just by way of generality, it's not right for us to get the impression that in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, moral perfection was required. The whole sacrificial system is part of that. 
So the assumption is that the people of God are going to fall into sin. Thus, there's going to be sacrifices that function in much the same way as our sacraments function today. That is to say, they communicate forgiveness of sins, won ultimately by Jesus on the cross. That's how the Old Testament sacrifices work. They communicate that forgiveness. But we get the wrong impression of the Old Testament if we think that moral perfection was required. What really breaks the Old Testament covenant, where God then treats his people as any of the other pagan nations who are not his own, is when they follow after the false gods of those pagan nations. And of course, what you see for century after century is how God is patient, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, but more patient than you or I would ever be. And so he's patient with their idolatry, but at various times, like enough's enough, and the covenant is bro- that is broken by the people is recognized as broken by God, and in come the Assyrians, in come the Babylonians. And there are other microcosmic events like that where, for example, Israel will lose to uh, Philistia or something like this. The ark will be captured or something like this. So there's these little episodic Losses, too, on account of the people's falling away from the covenant, which is ultimately to have Yahweh and Yahweh only as their God. Which I was reminded of this, that this is always the case in the pagan world. It's true as far back in time as you want to go. And it's true um, all the way up through history to the very present that paganism is always syncretistic. It's always, to put it in 21st century parlance, tolerant. Paganism always says, we don't care if you worship Yahweh. We don't care if you worship Jesus. As long as you worship our gods too. As long as you give a pinch of salt for Caesar as well. We can all get along. The offense of the one true God and his religion from the earliest days of history, the earliest days of the Old Testament, always for it, is the exclusivity. Yahweh alone. Jesus alone. No compromise. That's where the scandal and offense comes in. Okay, so all of that I think reflected here in verse 30, 31. Um, We go back to the mouth, tongue, lips that for two verses, that uh, meditation we had before in the previous section. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. Yeah, so you have this kind of, you have this like beautiful kind of poetic structure just invites meditation and contemplation, but the mouth flowers forth or the tongue is cut off. So, I mean, I don't know. That's, I think it's self-evident. I don't really want to belabor the point. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. I mean, that ties us into the idea that this isn't just wisdom in general. One is righteous because he's in relationship to Yahweh, who's crediting his faith as righteousness. And thus, the wisdom that is brought forth is the very wisdom of Yahweh. But the perverse tongue is cut off by Yahweh. And of course, that's his right. It's not your tongue. (laughs) Any more than it's your body or your soul, 
we all belong to the one who made us and we're completely accountable to him and he can do with us whatever he wants because there is no part of us that belongs to us. We belong entirely to him. So that accountability is certainly in play. Okay, it's a very similar statement here in 32. The lips of the righteous. So again, the mouth of the righteous and now the lips of the righteous. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. And of course, that's because they're instructed by the lips of God. So this is all the same idea that wisdom doesn't just spontaneously come up. It's deeply connected with God who is righteous and gives us righteousness. And then we have the contrast with the mouth of the wicked, um, what is perverse. So the lips of the righteous know, that is, are intimately acquainted with what is acceptable or what is good. The mouth of the wicked is intimately acquainted with what is perverse. So out of the mouth flows the abundance of the heart. It's kind of this picture of the heart welling up, and what's coming out of the mouth is what's welling up out of the heart. That's why St. Paul says, you know, let... It sounds like strict to us, or maybe even like legalistic or pietistic when St. Paul says, let no crass talk or foolish joking come out of your lips. Because the idea is that that's flowing out of a heart that isn't centered and grounded in Christ the righteous. So it's not as if this stuff just comes out of nowhere. It's either coming from the good or coming from the evil. So if you catch yourself, nip it in the bud, or... um, aspire to meditate and speak that which is right and good and wholesome would be the other thing. So the heart's flowing out, and the speech has a way of kind of training the heart. There's almost this symbiosis, too. It's where it's one thing to meditate on you know, something that's crass or funny for, for a brief second, and there's a, different, a difference between meditating on it and thinking on it and dwelling on it until you're thoroughly disgusted. It's kind of that idea that Luther has, too, of the... You can't stop the bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest. Yeah, that's, it's the same genre of wisdom here. Okay, so that brings us to a close on this section. It's just generally um, stretches from 24 to 32, and it's the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. As I mentioned, chapter 11, the whole thing is a meditation on righteous behavior. There's a lot more practical kind of application, so to speak, in these verses. Let me pause and see if you have any reflections on the previous section before we jump into the new. All right, seeing none, on to chapter 11, verse 1. Yeah. Are are we doing a microphone? One second, one second. Thank you. Um, There you go. This is kind of an old topic, but uh, it's brought up again here. Uh, wisdom is, is basically knowledge of the Lord. And if you could comment on that, I mean, in contrasting to our uh, culture today, wisdom is all kinds of things, I guess. But really, if you narrow it down, wisdom is the knowledge of the Word, knowledge of God, knowledge mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of the law. Uh, gospel, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, 
I think that at its at its just most basic level, if you were to put it concretely, it is that law, that natural law which God writes into the human heart, which is codified in the Ten Commandments. Because as you meditate on the law in that sense, you recognize that it's not strictly speaking about mere behavior. The law is an expression of the ordering of creation itself, which is the wisdom of God made manifest. So it is an understanding of the essence of creation and your role within creation. Now, of course, what you find, whether it's the natural law written on your heart, your own conscience accusing you or excusing you, or whether it's a meditation on the law of God, um, writ precise in the Ten Commandments, ultimately you feel that accusation, you feel what St. Paul says, that all have fallen short of the glory of the Lord. So that's then precisely the place in which you see that God is not only just, but also merciful, and gives his Son, that his Son might fulfill justice, in making atonement for the sins of the world, but in the very act of that fulfilling of justice, show forth unspeakable mercy. And so he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I do think that just from an existential, that's an experiential type of uh, way of looking at things, It's the law written on the heart, and that law already speaks to a fact that there's a God, a designer, a creator, an orderer of things. And the suppression amongst the the wicked of the creator is precisely a suppression of that order. There is no creator. There is no order. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And what we're really doing is retracing the steps now of evil and the steps of foolishness because you're ultimately living a deceit where you think that there's no order and so you're acting as if there's no order when in fact there is an order and there are dire consequences for you and for everyone else for you living and acting as if there were none. So I think that's where these things hit at like the grassroots level and where Paul's going like in Romans 1 and 2 was saying like, look, the, the knowledge that there is a God, the knowledge that he's made the world, the knowledge that he's ordered the world in certain ways, the knowledge that he's due thanks and praise and exclusive worship, this is available to everyone. It's not, in fact, that's even too weak. This is written into the heart of everyone. You have to actively suppress that within yourself and deceive yourself in order to become and be godless. So in my mind, this might not be the best way to articulate it, but I I think that this, at least it's an attitudinal or psychological posture that we need to have as Christians that we've completely lost because we're a minority and a shrinking minority and we're made to feel as though we're ashamed and as if... Culture has the high ground, and for too long we've pandered as if maybe culture does have the high ground and we should just play along, and you know, this is all nonsense. We need to reclaim the high ground because God has the high ground, and we're his, so we're standing on the high ground with him, and the high ground is, who are you, O man, 
to doubt the Creator. Who are you, O man, to reject His order? That's the high ground that we need to take. And I think that this manifests itself in many and various ways, but it's that at least attitudinal or psychological posture that we need to regain so that when we're sharing the gospel or um, dialoguing with people in our families, outside of our families, we understand that we're standing in the way of righteousness with the righteous one and speaking in that vein. So no pandering required. And a sense of like, I don't need to prove anything to you. God doesn't need to prove anything to you. You already are aware of him. You're just repressing him. That kind of statement is what we need to recapture, I think. So, Anyway, some random thoughts. Loosely strung together. <laughs> All right, anything else we want to think on? All right, into chapter 11 we go. Verse... One, should be obvious, a false balance is an abomination of the Lord. So again, God is a God of justice. A false scale is an abomination to the Lord. This is used for cheating people, obviously. It's one of the signs in Revelation of a thoroughly corrupted world. Is basically all the scales are false. I don't know. Kind of seems a little bit like our, our marketplace, doesn't it? Or, yeah. Yeah, here's your $600 check. Now we're going to boost... We're going to boost inflation by how many percentage points? And take it right back and then some? Yeah. Some, there's something not quite straightforward there, Right? All right, a false balance is an abomination of the Lord, and he sees all and judges all. But a just weight is his delight. So even something so simple as a minor transaction up to the macro system that's in place, a false balance is an abomination. A just weight is his delight. Just is Salamah or Shalamah, um, complete, perfect from Shalom, safe, peaceful. So it's not, it's not transaction that's wrong. It's not economy that's wrong. But it's the abuse of transaction. It's the abuse of economy. I mean, in fact, that's the whole nature of vocation, isn't it? If you're a shoemaker, you need a shirt maker. Because <laughs> you don't have time. You're making shoes. He's making shirts. But then you trade fair for fair. And society goes on, and that's simply vocation writ large, is everybody's treating each other fairly, but where we start to see everybody simply trying to abuse and take advantage of his neighbor, charging whatever price you want for decreasingly good service. Cox Cable! Excuse me. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, you see where it gets us societally. Okay, so, you know, if you're ticked at this stuff, good. God's ticked too. And eventually it gets set right, and when God goes about to setting things right, it's pretty definitive. (laughs) 
Okay, and we want to live in light of that final judgment because the people dealing with the false balances are people who in their minds are thinking there is no God or if there is, he doesn't care. But we know there is a God and we know he does care. Conduct yourself accordingly. That's wisdom. All right, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. As, as pride cometh, so goeth the fall. There's a little bit of a word play here. When pride, which is zadown, comes, then comes kalown. So with pride, pride first, then disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Yeah. Humble gets misunderstood for being just only self-deprecating and sort of like crawling around on your belly and denying um, that you have any worth or value or any wisdom. And that's a, that's a false caricature of humility. Humility is exactly what it is. No more, no less. That's really more what biblical humility is. It's not deprecating yourself below your station. Um, we part of the reason why the pastoral office, for example, suffers so much in our culture is because the pastors have been self-deprecating and deprecating of the office, thinking that this is a show of humility. It's not. All you're doing is denigrating the office and denigrating your position within that office. Paul is absolutely humble when he says, I have a direct call from the Lord. That's why I'm saying to you what I'm saying to you, and you have to listen. That's humility. Being exactly what you are and what you've been given to do is humble. Okay? So to be below that is to distort and miss the mark, or to act as though you're more than that is to distort and miss the mark. Does that make some sense? The same is true with like meekness. It's like, oh, okay, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, that means we all just need to like grovel and self-loathing and be wimpy and passive and uh, whoever's the biggest doormat wins. That's not biblical meekness. So at the heart of this is proper order, to know your place and station in life and then to conduct yourself faithfully within those bounds, that is humility. That is meekness. Why? Because you're deferring to the order of God. You're deferring to the hierarchy of God. You're deferring to him who called you into this position, whether it's low or high, whatever. He called you into this position. Conduct yourself rightly within that position. That's precisely humility because you're putting away your ego that says, oh, I'm going to self-deprecate or I'm going to self-aggrandize. I'm going to leave both of those off the table and just be what God has given me to be and do what God has given me to do. That's humility. That's meekness. So, worth pondering so we don't lose ourselves there. The, when pride, which is, you know, again, I would argue, out, stepping outside of the vocation and office that God has given you to do to one side or the other. When pride comes, then comes disgrace or the fall. Um, but with the humble is wisdom. So who would be more humble than Jesus? But is Jesus not aggressive? Boy, you see him aggressive in the gospel today. I mean, you see him going right after word for word, sword crossed with sword, 
against his accusers in the gospel today. You see Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. You see Jesus in the garden when the soldiers come to arrest him, saying, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am that I am. And he knocks them all down with the power of the divine name. Um, Is he humble? Yeah, precisely because he is who he is. And he does what he's been given to do, no more, no less. The same thing is true with Mary, by the way. It's one of the most beautiful things about Mary. I always try to draw it out in our Advent meditations. What makes Mary so wonderful is she's not trying to be more than what God has given her to be. Nor is she self-deprecating or like rolling around on the ground or, you know, she's just, no, I'm a lowly handmaiden. That's what God's given me to be. But in his grace and in his favor, he's smiled upon me and done this miraculous and wonderful thing that I should be the mother of my Lord. <laughs> she, Mary is such an emblematic example of femininity, too, because, you know, in our culture, femininity is like, hey, the only way you're going to have value is if you're masculine. Do you see the irony there? That feminism and femininity, or feminism rather, is its exact opposite. You've got to be like a man to have worth. I mean, that's like, (laughs) is anybody paying attention? True feminism would be, what's femininity? Let's be exactly that. No more, no less. That's humility, that's meekness, that's true feminism, that's true femininity is to be exactly what God has given you to be. It's also true masculinity, by the way. It's to be what God has given you to be, no more, no less. It's the nature of all, it flows through all the vocations, it flows through our very ontology. Okay, that's probably enough. So then verse 3, the integrity of the upright, the tumat of the yasarim, we've seen these words before, guides them. So again, notice that it's not like, oh, woe is me, I by nature am sinful and unclean, I cannot ever have integrity or ever be upright. That's, no, that's not correct. You have been given the Holy Spirit, you have been made new, you want to strive to live in integrity and uprightness. Concretely, use just weights. Be humble, be exactly what God has given you to be, no more, no less. That's how to walk with integrity. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. And it's true, it's one of the great things that the world, through its media, doesn't show us, is it shows you all, all manner of people acting crooked and treacherous. It rarely shows you their destruction. And if it shows you their destruction, it does so for just a brief second, and then it's on to the next person who's living perversely and treacherously and having a wonderful life. So this is one of the great myths and ways that the the world lies to us, is by constantly showing us fresh faces who are doing whatever they want to do with apparently no consequences. Even just more generally speaking, we all know that our consequence, that, that our consequence is the grave and, the judge, and facing God in judgment. So, I mean, this is where, too, it's like a perfectly true line. Nobody gets away with anything. Live and be accordingly. Just because you get away with it for a time doesn't mean you ultimately do. Okay. Now, as we think about that, it's like, okay, well, woe is me. 
And how will I stand before the judgment seat of God? Right, if he should count iniquities, who can stand? No one. But with him there is compassion, mercy, forgiveness in Christ Jesus. That is ultimately our righteousness. But then knowing that that's the case, knowing that as the scriptures say, the righteous are barely saved, how then should we live? Knowing that on the last day when Christ the righteous one comes, the very sun and stars and moon, the very elements of creation melt away in his presence on account of his holiness. How then should we be? I mean, this is what the New Testament authors who love the gospel and know the gospel say. So here too, Solomon, um, again, setting before us the way of the integrity, uh, the way of integrity for the upright, and warning outright that crookedness and treachery ultimately lead one to his own demise. Okay, um, four riches do not profit in the day of wrath. <laughs> right. So when you do get called to your particular judgment, and there you are before the Lord, are you going to offer him your money? Are <laughs> you going to be able to bribe him in that day? It's kind of one of the delights about the streets in heaven made with gold, like the most precious, worth, you know, uh, expensive, valuable stuff we have here is like asphalt in heaven. You could care less. <laughs> you <could> care less. <laughs> so, no, you're not going to... Yeah, so riches do not profit in the day of wrath. You know, think of the poor people. I mean, here's where you you can, I don't know, you can only pity them so far because they get what's coming to them and they certainly deserve it. But you do pity the, the extremely wealthy who think they've got it all and will always have it all. It's just not true. I mean, it's like watching people, it's like watching people on a pleasure boat, you know, drinking it up and, you know, thinking they're the best and, you know, cheers, chink, chink. And then you're the one that can see the waterfall right around the corner. They can't see it. Okay, so riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Again, we talked about the way that that righteousness is communicated all through the scriptures in this twofold sense. We we could just, I mean, kind of use the cookie cutter like righteousness is twofold. Righteousness is justification, so entirely apart from works. Righteousness is living out that justification. It manifests itself in works. That's fine. Um, Righteousness in the Old Testament is being in right relationship with Yahweh, where he is crediting your faith in the Messiah as righteousness. And then because he's doing that for you and you have this relationship with him, this covenantal relationship with him, you're seeking to walk in his ways. And where you fall short, you're confessing and being forgiven. So even in the Old Testament here where Solomon is speaking, it's the same in principle for us today. This righteousness, walking with the righteous one, delivers from death. And does he not do that very thing? So what's more precious all the money and all the riches and all the mammon in the world that can't save you in the day of wrath or the righteous one who can. It's where having Christ makes you the richest person. 
I mean, you're, you're equally as rich with anyone else who has Christ, but it makes you literally, I, and I mean, this is just not even an exaggeration. It's just literally, foundationally true. If you have Christ, you are more rich than anyone else on the face of the earth. You are equally rich with those who have Christ with you. And what's going to prove that is the day of wrath and the day of judgment. What's going to prove that is death. You can have all the riches in the world and they'll save you not. You have Christ and you're saved and blessed unto eternity. So it's like no joke. It's no sleight of hand. It's literally, concretely true that if you have Christ, you have everything. And isn't that exactly what Paul says? St. Paul says, Would he who spared not his own beloved son, but gave him up for us, not also give us all things. God, your Father, knows you have need of these things. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. That's true in this life. It's also absolutely true, unspeakably true in that life which is to come. So that's what we're banking on. That's what we're investing in. And that's, those are the true riches that are set before us. It's why Christ, this, this parable always, remi- or the parable, sorry, wrong class. This proverb reminds me of Jesus. You cannot serve God and mammon. You're going to hate the one and love the other. Because they both hold out salvation. And that's what's so pernicious about money and why it's such an idol for us and why we feel our hearts cling to it because if we're rich enough we don't need God. In fact, a lot of the, like why do you want why do you want more money? I want more money so I can do x y and z. Don't you think that God will provide x y and z in due time if that's what's best for you? So there's a kind of idolatrous uh, struggle there between mammon and God. And just because we struggle with that doesn't mean we've given ourselves over to it. We entrust ourselves to the Lord. We serve him, not mammon. We realize that it's secondary. But we know that it's also coming. I mean, in the sense that all the material wealth, the whole of creation is yours. That's what St. Paul's saying. He who gave his own beloved son for you I mean, he who already gave you the creator of all things, <laughs> will he not also give you all the things that he made? That's the new heavens and the new earth. So again, it's not as if the stuff is in itself wrong. It's wait and have it rightly ordered and become inheritors of the entire new heavens and new earth. That's the wealth and riches set before us. Okay, maybe enough on that, but let me pause and see. We've covered, what, what has it been? Four verses, four um, Proverbs. So any thoughts springing up or any questions or concerns? All right, so then into five. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight. And I always think of this like, like father, like son. That's kind of the language here. The righteous of the blameless keeps his way straight. Christ is the righteous one. He sets us on the way. That's the very thing that keeps our path straight. But the wicked falls by his own wickedness. 
Yeah, and that's, that gives you, too, a sense of um, sin as its own punishment. One of, the, one of the terrifying things in Romans, where Paul takes up a similar thought, is remember how they first deny the Creator and start worshiping creation instead of the Creator. I think environmentalism, I mean, is about the same thing today. It's a false religion, ultimately, a kind of a fertility call. And look what, look what climate religion tells you to do. There's overpopulation, so you need to not be fruitful and multiply. And if you do accidentally have children, you can abort them, and you're doing it for the good of nature. It's just pagan religion. I mean, this is just nothing new under the sun, straight-up paganism. We're just waiting for them to name the goddess. Okay? But that's what it is. So we, we recognize then um, in Romans where Paul directs that you go away from the Creator into creation, into the things your own hands make. That's the making of idols, which this day and age is largely technology. I mean, isn't that the chat GPT? The chat GPT is just the pagan, the cheap, poor man's replacement for God. It's no longer what does God say, and people go to the Bible, but it's what does chat GPT say? That's definitive. So what you're, what you're actually seeing, like I know we're not there yet. I won't take credit for being prophetic when we do get there. But trust me, this is the next God. And this will be a profoundly powerful God for pagan peoples because they'll go, huh, what does the AI say? Then that's definitive. That's objective. So, um, all right, so you're worshiping not the creator but the creature, and then you're worshiping the idols your own hands have made. Even that's now your own technology. And God gives you over progressively into doing those things which are not natural and for, so that as you are sinning, then he simply gives you over to that sin. And he simply says, if that's what you want, have it. And so that sin becomes its own punishment, um, almost in a way that like someone is degrading themselves, um, you know, acting like a pig slopping around in the muck. That's their own, like, that's their own degradation. It's their own filthiness. It's their own curse. So it's not to say anything about like the final judgment of God. I mean, that's coming, but already sin is its own punishment. And that's also the sense that nobody gets away with anything because as you, as you sin, sin isn't this inert thing where you can just go, okay, I'm going to sin this much, but no more. It never works that way. That's why the scriptures tell us to give no place for sin and no compromise with sin because sin doesn't work that way. It's not this inert thing. It's not this transactional thing that can be reasoned with. Sin is crouching out the door to devour you. Sin is like is like gravity. Sin is a force. Sin, um, if in the scriptures, is sometimes even personified as that which is trying to devour you. So you don't make a compromise with a pit bull that's attacking you. Okay, you can have my arm and then just go away. It's not going to happen, and it's not wise to do that. Okay, So that's, that's the nature of sin being its own punishment. It's a devouring uh, destruction. Okay, so again, as if we needed more motivation to stay away from sin, there it is. 
And then six, the righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. And the root here is hava, which is desire. And it's, there's also a play on words here because it's not only desire, which is, which is like an emptiness, a need, a kind of black hole of desire. And that's exactly what it comes to mean, a chasm, a pit, an abyss, destruction. So the church fathers were especially strong at locating this in the New Testament scriptures, that the, that the true nature of sin, it's not like, hey, I'm a generally good person that makes a few mistakes. That's the American version of sin. I'm generally a good person who occasionally makes mistakes. Uh, no, it's that if you have these quote-unquote mistakes, these quote-unquote sins, that's bad fruit coming from a bad tree. That is to say that the real problem isn't that you sin, but that you're a sinner, because you're a sinner, you sin. So at the root of our sinfulness is, so the reformers talk about it as concupiscence, this constant desire in the flesh toward that which is wicked. So evil isn't inert within us. It's constantly hungry and devouring and desirous and lusty. All right? So then that desire, that concupiscence, Luther and the earlier church fathers identify as the chief problem. And here's the thing, like as you fulfill those desires and that lust, as you take captive what you want, those very things take you captive. Now you can see that obviously with, um, I mean certain sins are just so obvious, like alcohol, like if you get addicted to alcohol, like, who's drinking who here? You know, um, if you get addicted to food, who's eating f- who here? It's pretty soon you're not able to do anything. Tired. Um, you know, same with lust. It's like, oh, I'm just going to indulge this once. Is that once ever fulfilling? No, it incites a craving that's worse than heroin. And, I mean, science is catching up with theology and realizing that that's true. So these, these lusts, and this, by the way, too, is where, um, where Lutherans have no problem with the identification in the early medieval period of the seven deadly sins. Just don't make them, like, don't make it a kind of salvation issue. Like, so the way... Roman Catholicism conceives of these things as if these are serious sins that can put you in hell and everything else are not serious sins that can't put you in hell. All right, we reject that nonsense. But we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the baby in this case is the fact that these seven deadly sins are really root passions or root desires, concupiscences, that if you feed them, they don't get satiated. They get hungrier and hungrier. And ultimately, what you're consuming consumes you. What you take captive takes you captive. And that's the sense of this uh, parable that, or gosh, I don't know why I keep doing that. Proverbs, I'm teaching parables tomorrow night. Get it straight, Rody. But the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. So we think, uh, just one more point on this, hope I'm not belaboring it too much, but we think of this like, oh, the Ten Commandments, they're so confining, I wish I could be free. 
God's word is so confining. I wish I could be free. Free to do what? Free to do whatever I want, which is what? Sin, which is what? Captivity. That's just bound. Now you're only bound to your own lust. Now you can't even get outside of yourself. And the more you try to satiate those lusts, that concupiscence within you, the more bound to it and the more captive you are. That's the nature of it. So again, this is reason why the, why the righteous would be encouraged. Like, look, yeah, okay, you can't be perfect. Got it. You, you, but is there value in striving? <laughs> Absolutely. Is there great danger in turning the gospel as something that actually just serves or empowers sin? Yeah, that's a huge problem. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. Are you crazy? St. Paul says. Do you know what you're dealing with here? Um, do not, you know, do not use your liberty as an excuse for sin. Like the idea there is like, do you know what mistake you're making and using liberty to loose sin upon yourself? Yeah, well. So the New Testament, this applies just as well for us. The treacherous are taken captive by their lust, um, contrasting it, the righteous or the righteousness of the upright delivers them. So deliverance or captivity are contrasted there. All right, seven, when the wicked dies, his hope will perish. What's the, <laughs> what's the wicked hope in? Yeah, generally more stuff and I'm never going to die. Great point. And then when he perishes, well, <laughs> that's the end of that hope. He's dead and no more stuff. So when the wicked dies, his hope will perish. Isn't there something like that in Dante's uh, Inferno? Um, Abandon hope, all ye who enter herein. Is that how it goes? Over hell when you enter through the gates? I can't remember. Is that where it is? Or is it, yeah. It's been too long since I've read that. Yeah, abandon hope. So the wicked, um, when the wicked dies, his hope will perish. And the expectation of wealth perishes too. So again, just this meditation on um, mammon won't save you. The Lord will. So you have to choose whom you'll serve. Okay, eight. The righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. So again, this just has to do with the sovereignty of God rather than the pragmatism that we see with our eyes. Because pragmatically we see, okay, um, you know, if I just fudge this a little, if I'm just wicked a little, it's not going to matter. But that's not, in fact, the case. Through wickedness, you end up walking right into trouble because God is sovereign over over all, and mere pragmatism or what looks to be right or looks to be wise is deceitful and deceptive. It's not the case. The righteous, on the other hand, are delivered from trouble. And by the way, I think that's true. I mean, this is something the Catechism points out, is that God saves us from all kinds of trouble that we're not even aware of on a daily basis. Who knows how many cancer cells he took out of your body without you even recognizing it. When you were disappointed, 
because you dropped something and spilled it and you had to stop and clean it up. Who knows if you were spared a deadly car accident or some other disaster. I mean, all of these things are so far above our pay grade that we simply need to entrust ourselves, that, entrust ourselves to the Lord and the knowledge that he is keeping us from all kinds of trouble. And when trouble does befall us, instead of falling into the typical pattern of like, oh gosh, again? I'm cursed. God hates me. It's like, I wonder how many other things God spared me from today. And he's given me this burden that I can bear it and be faithful and learn from it. That's a much better Christian attitude. Another thing that's helpful sometimes is just when you feel that your spirit going like, oh, this sucks. I mean, there's Job, and then there's Rody. I'm a pretty close second, you know. <laughs> Minivan got a flat tire. That registers, doesn't it? You know, this kind of thing. Um, so when you find your spirit like going into the woe is me, poor me, pretty much Job and I are sitting on the dung heap together right now. Uh, it's really helpful to combat that by just being thankful. It's like the last thing you really want to be. <laughs> the last thing. But you force yourself into it. And it's amazing how, you know, as the mouth goes, the spirit follows. And all of a sudden, you're contextualized in a much more honest way. So give thanks in all circumstances, Paul says. And it's, there's great wisdom there. Okay, well, I see we've got a minute left. That's probably enough for today. The Lord be with you.